Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics scholars and certain comics classics into conversation with each other. And today we'd like to welcome you very specifically to the world of 1990s alternative comics, where a group of committed creators with literary aspirations pushed the comics' literature movement into the conversation by turning their backs on big pouches and big guns in favor of existential tales of youth in crisis and bodies at war with their own libidos. On this episode, we'll explore this era through a robust comparison of Daniel Clow's Ghost World to Adrian Tomine's Summer Blonde and other stories, as well as a review of Charles Hatfield's Alternative Comics and Emerging Literature. The women are quirky, the men are perverse, and the resolutions are ambiguous. Let's get started. Dr. J. Andrew DeMann, an instructor at St. Jerome's University, and I am joined as always by... I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. And... I'm Michael Hancock, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Waterloo. Anna, can you please get us started with an introduction for Daniel Cloud's Ghost World? I certainly can. So the graphic novel Ghost World by Daniel Klaus, which was originally serialized in Klaus's comic book series Eight Ball beginning in 1993 before being collected in 1997 into the single volume that we're discussing today. Ghost World was an immediate commercial and critical success and has developed over the years into a cult classic, no doubt aided by its even more popular and equally enjoyable 2001 film adaptation starring Thora Birch, Steve Muchemi, and a very young Scarlett Johansson. Ghost World chronicles the day-to-day lives of the fabulously named Enid Coleslaw and Rebecca Doppelmeyer, a pair of teenage pseudo-intellectuals who have recently graduated high school and aren't quite sure what to do next. A lot of the comic features the girls wandering around somewhat aimlessly in their generic American town, making fun of the squares of the local diner and seeking out pockets of weirdness and difference amid the suburban bleakness. Enid and Rebecca spend much of their time avoiding their former classmates, simultaneously flirting with and pestering Josh, the only seemingly not creepy, but also sort of creepy boy in town, and developing comically depressing backstories for local characters, like a gothic older couple they call the Satanists, an astrologer named Bob Skeets, and a dour, curly-haired, gangle-puss of a waiter they nickname Weird Al. Over the course of the comic, Enid and Rebecca's own differences grow. By the end of the comic, they've changed from being inseparable to being effectively estranged, walking separate paths into an uncertain adulthood, or in Enid's case, taking a mysterious boss out of town. It's hard to do justice to this comic in a factual summary because so much of its appeal is linked to its communication of a mood. Klaus has said that he chose to limit the comic book to black, white, and various pale blue washes because he wanted to evoke a kind of melancholy gloaming, which Klaus describes as the experience of walking home in the twilight when every house has a television on and the living rooms are bathed in a ghostly blue light. This is a story about the placelessness of being too old to be a child but not quite an adult, within the sprawl of suburbia and the shallowness of postmodern commercial culture at the end of the 20th century. It's been favorably compared to J.D. Salinger's classic coming-of-age novel Catcher in the Rye, and anyone who's read both texts will understand why. Like Salinger's Holden Caulfield, Enid and Rebecca are at once cynical and naive, world-weary and romantic, in ways that are both fascinatingly specific and alluringly universal. Ghost World is a comic I like a great deal, but also find it a bit hard to talk about. Because it is so moody and essentially lacks a traditional plot, it feels almost better to let it exist as a mood, rather than trying to pin it down. But for your edification and ours, that's exactly what we're going to try and do today. 
will either spoil the comic's magic or explain it, or spoil it by explaining it, as academics are wont to do. Um, but it's a chance we've got to take. No one ever said being a comic scholar was easy. Uh, and Michael, can you tell us a little bit about Summer Blonde? I'll try to follow that. Adrian Tomin's Summer Blonde is part of his larger series, Optic Nerve, 14 issues of short stories that span his comic career. From his origins as a self-published 16-year-old selling his book in local comic shops, to his contemporary work illustrating for the New Yorker and opening gallery exhibitions. Over that span of 20-some years, Tomin's work has touched on issues of race, gender, cityscapes, and anecdotes of his own life. Summer Blonde, in particular, consists of five issues 5 through 8 of Optic Nerve, each one constituting its own short story. First is Alter Ego, the story of Martin Courtney, a writer working through writer's block and slowly pushing away his girlfriend in favor of a relationship that may not exist and a vision of himself which certainly does not exist. Next is the titular story, Summer Blonde. The blonde in question is the unhappy Vanessa, and the story follows her and the men in her life who in the process of performing their masculinity generally act to make her more unhappy. Third is Hilary Chan's story, a woman who is rejected by her family, by her roommate, and, improbably enough, rejected by Will Shatner. The story ends with Hilary grimly facing down the prospect of being rejected once again. Finally, we have the Eisner-nominated Bomb Scare and a, teen, and a pair of teen protagonists. Scotty, a teenage boy who has doubts about his overly close friendship with his best friend, and Cammy, a girl who is shamed by her classmates for intoxicated behavior and sexual promiscuity. However, against all odds, the two come together and reach a moment of deep empathy and mutual affection. Just kidding. Their story also ends on a bleak note of uncertainty and isolation. I was about to interrupt you. Go ahead. <laughs> the back cover for the collection is a series of panels from all the issues, each focusing on hands. Hands grasping bodies, hands holding phones, hands around necks. And in each case, the face and body are, at most, only partially present. The cover is an excellent representation of the book as a whole. Full of detail, yet still abstract, almost painfully intimate while still keeping at a distance, each clearly distinct, though striking a very similar tone. Tomin's craft is impressive, and personally my favorite page is the series of silent panels that start the drunken party at the beginning of Bomb Scare, but the pacing throughout the collection is, as a whole is excellent. Tomin lingers on some scenes and draws others to an abrupt stop, echoing this, the sense of the protagonist's unease into the reader. None of the main characters are particularly likable here. Each seems to harbor resentment for the people around them and self-loathing for themselves in varying ratios. At the same time, there's just enough self-awareness and goodness in them for you to have a faint hope they may change for the better. Ultimately, each story maintains this challenging balance, and each in that sense is probably worth reading, though taking the collection as a whole, I found myself wishing that it gave me a little more to smile about. So I think maybe one of the best ways to start talking about these texts is to um, build a little bit of context around them in the sort of um, era that they share and how they each respond to specific elements of alternative comics. Um, so Anna, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of that context and just sort of tell us what alternative comics is in contrast to the mainstream <laughs> or underground. I'm like the worst person to talk about this because as we were just talking about what we were going to talk about for the pod, you know, taking you behind the curtain, um, <laughs> I was saying that Summer Blonde is a bit like 
it has so many of the things that I don't like about alternative <laughs> comics. Because, I mean, I'm sort of... I think about alternative comics as kind of a genre in a way. Like, as much as mm-hmm. we speak about alternative comics as being something alternative, in their determination to be not superhero comics, they sort of adopt... And again, specifically in the 90s and, like, early 2000s, like, alternative comics can mean anything now. But, like, you know, it's kind of like the way we talk about alternative music, how that was a specific genre in a specific time. I think of kind of, like, alternative comics being a little bit like that, too, where there are certain, you know, stylistic conventions. There are certain sort of common themes that you see across a lot of graphic novels from this period. And we can certainly see some sort of similar style references and themes across Ghost World and Summer Blonde, which is why we paired them. I mean, this was a period in which comic books were gaining a ton of legitimacy um, that partly is has to do with the immense praise that in particular Ghost World received. Right. You know, people's kind of shock that you could tell this kind <laughs> of story in a comic was in 1997 still a relatively new idea. Um, you had Spiegelman's Mouse winning the Pulitzer in, what, 92? Yep, 92 or 93. So, yeah. I mean, that was this big moment of people realizing comics could do more than superhero stories effectively. We, we have the story about, you know, the newest story about comics aren't just superheroes anymore, like about every 10 years <laughs> since like 1955. But, you know, still it was it was something that people were, were learning in a big way in the 90s. That was a big turning point. I mean, they're both kind of in conversation with 90s culture too. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly kind of like DIY culture, zine culture are going to be big influences on on both of these. How do you think that sort of literary aspiration element manifests in something yeah, like Ghost that's a good question. Like, like what is Klaus doing to fill that niche created mm-hmm. by, say, like Mouse winning the Pulitzer Prize? Yeah, well, I mean, stories that are kind of like obsessively personal and introspective in nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically contrasted with, I mean, that's always been an element of kind of like the underground comics that preceded alternative comics, right? Except for you see much more of a kind of... Um, I don't know, like deconstructive self-criticalness here than you saw in a lot of kind of the underground comics of the 60s and early 70s, where it was more just like about, you know, getting your id down on paper and like there was no wrong answer to anything. And I mean, one of the big problems that people have talked about with Robert Crumb's work is just that like he is putting everything down and he's not necessarily thinking about, should I put this down? And am I being thoughtful about representing masculinity or am I just like representing elemental aspects of masculinity as I see it right so like this is very different than that um in terms of kind of the thoughtfulness of its representations and I can see kind of the novelistic influence in that way can you see ghost world as being sort of like a mainstreaming of some of those underground energies that you're talking about or is that yeah I mean maybe but I mean I think the thing that's still very different from with both of these like that makes them perhaps not novelistic. And I'm someone who's always pushing back against the term graphic novel. And I would continue, you'll notice in the podcast, I usually say comic (laughs) instead of graphic novel because, and you know, as we were doing our interest to both of these, these were in serialized, you know, like author anthologies prior to this, and then they get collected and now suddenly they're graphic novels. And there's some sense to that and that, you know, I, I, I know Ghost World in particular, you know, he redid a bunch of the art and stuff to make it more of a, you know, unified product when it was put out in the, in the, in the 1997 edition, but at the same time, like these were stories written across years that people would have followed in somewhat serialized nature. But I mean, Ghost World and I mean, Summer Blonde is a collection of stories. It, it could be read almost like in a literary way as a collection of short stories, but Ghost World, it's a loosely connected 
set of short stories possibly mm-hmm. and yet it's got kind of an open-endedness that feels very comics to me mm-hmm. i mean it is a picture story right i mean what i was talking about in the intro that it's like very moody i can think of like a version of this that would be a collection of short stories and yet it's very different from that too i mean there's so much that's subjective and open-ended because of the nature of it being a story with pictures and the nature of the pictures and it is a specific thing it's comics it, there's a literary influence, but it feels very comics well, to me. Almost less the literary influence. It feels mm. very... I mean, it was made into an indie film. It has a very indie film yeah, feel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, again, when you think about... If you compare it to the filmic adaptation, it puts a bunch of the different characters together mm-hmm. into like, you know, one or two characters and so gives it, it does give it more of an overarching plot. Yes, and puts like known movie stars in it. Yeah, right. yeah of course. What about Summer Blonde, Michael? How, I mean, you have a PhD in English literature. <laughs> How do you situate this in that that context? Again, as a text that is trying to push its way into that, like let's say even canon potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that affecting this book and how's it affecting your experience of it? I'd like to remind the listeners that my PhD was on <laughs> video games. In English literature. <laughs> Michael is also a published mathematician, FYI. There's a heavy autobiographical feel to this, even though it's rarely the sort of character that seems to echo Tomin's actual life, at least explicitly. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of draws out that sense of you're getting a glimpse of an episode in a person's life rather than a story that finishes neatly in some cases. Yeah. Well, Anna was mentioning the ghost world, how it itself has its own kind of episodic feel or, yeah. or vignette-like feel. Summer Blonde is, is four distinctive yes. stories, entirely distinctive characters. What, what for you gives it any unity if it has it? Or is it just, let's just put together Adrian Tomey's Well, I mean, there's certainly a tonal uh, consistency. The ages skew a little bit that our last story is teenagers and everyone else seems to be a little older than that. Mm-hmm. But... It is all this sense of people who are reaching a point in their life where they're questioning, like, what am I doing? What else is there? And not finding very many answers to that. People who are trying to find it in their work or their relationships, and those are not panning out for them. So modernism? I suppose. I can't offer as much on the literary comparison, but I can offer, like, a personal experience that I read Ghost World, and I definitely read something from Tomian, if not Summer Blonde specifically, when I was in my early 20s, when mm-hmm. I was reading, when I was moving into these comics for the first time because I was living in the city for the first time, and I had access to these comics for the first time. And if this has a target audience, it was me because I was living a life that was very similar to these characters in the sense of kind of an alienated youth who wasn't quite sure what they were doing and was having trouble connecting with people and yet i am I did sure not... you were not the asshole that any of these dudes were. no <laughs> which is exactly why it didn't click for me like it seems so exaggerated that like this is i am a highly alienated person but i don't act like this even though my life wasn't great like i was still like well, it's not that bad. Jeez. Well, I mean, I kind of see the legacy of alternate or of underground comics rather like a little bit just in the sense that like you're trying so hard to distinguish yourself from that like main, what you see as mainstream pap, mm-hmm. which is 
predominantly superhero fare mm-hmm. that you know you end up focusing on things that are so the opposite of that things have to be hopelessness things have to be disappointingly to me kind of the same exaggerated yeah, masculinity which, which created, as, like, unfortunately its own kind of generic blandness like yeah. i like most of these works individually but mm-hmm. When you read a lot of them together, they blur a lot. Well, you know what, like, 90s alternative comics remind me of a little bit? Like, 80s superhero comics. Mm. You know, where they're, like, trying so hard to be taken (laughs) seriously that it can Mm. actually be, like, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. I like the kind of place where alternative comics are in now a little bit because they seem, like, a little bit less afraid of being taken seriously. And we can have a bit more diversity kind of in the types of stories that are being told. Whereas, like, this kind of earlier generation, I just, I, I feel that kind of embarrassment that kind of like we all have to do something really serious so we have to tell this certain kind of story because that's how we're going to differentiate ourselves from superhero pap and like convince people that we're real literature do you think that either of these texts as an extreme is um reading as a little bit apologetic to you apologetic in what sense in the sense of please take me seriously i'm sorry uh. i have a comic book Oh, oh wow. well, when, when Klaus does the whole, like, I'm meeting with this comic book artist, Klaus, and, like... Yeah, because we see this in Chris Ware's work, and we talked about in Jimmy Corrigan. Like, it's got the outright, like, oh, oh you like comics? That's so... Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and I complained about with this with Jimmy Corrigan, that kind of, like, a sad sack dude who is, mm-hmm. like, a total misogynist, but, like, feels bad about himself for some, I mean... He is an outsider, you know, these characters for various reasons, yet at the same time it becomes hard to be sympathetic to them because, you know, they kind of sound like nascent MRAs. Yeah. And there's so many of those in both of these. And that's a character you see, like, a lot in alternative comics. And, like, I do see that as sort of, like, the guilt and shame of the creators coming across. I mean, one of the mm. things that bugs me about it is I think a lot of these, like, you know, like, I've seen Seth talk a couple of times and I'm like, the Seth that's him and his comics is so much more unpleasant than he comes across in like an interview so i'm just like are you really this terrible like you're just like exaggerating your terribleness what is that though because we might have some of that happening especially in tony's work why do you think that in this particular era creators are representing themselves as like a raging id that is shameful beyond the reality maybe like a struggling it's the vision of the struggling genius that was popular at the time yeah i mean it's got to be related to comics though too yeah like i mean it's got to be like i mean you know that like lack of respect of comics like feeling like you're Mm. not a real writer or artist or anything because you do comics i mean i have to think that's part of it and you mentioned the connection to crumb yeah that's kind of what crumb does and here it's turned down Mm -hmm. quite a bit i'm not sure that's a comfortable point of comparison yeah, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's an inevitable point of comparison if we're going to do alternative comics versus underground comics. I mean, Crumb is the representative of underground comics in our cultural cultural consciousness. So, so how does this work when we talk about the, like the chronology? Because, Michael, you mentioned that you were reading it in the 1990s. Like, oh, did the you... early 2000s. Or sorry, early 2000s. Yeah. Would, would this be far more acceptable to you now? Where, or sorry, then? Whereas now you might read this as more like like dour and... No, I felt it was, if anything, I thought it was more dour than, (laughs) because like, I mean, it's probably personal that my main genres of reading then and now are fantasy and sci-fi and fantasy. I did my master's on like arguments that fantasy is primarily a literature of hope Mm -hmm. and this, this ain't hope. (laughs) (laughs) 
So shifting us in a slightly different direction, um, one of the themes content-wise that unites these two texts is this concept of sexual maturity. Um, you have a lot of characters who are, we're depicting our sex lives again, just like the underground comics movement kind of would and the early alternative comics movement very typically would. But at the same time, it goes so incredibly badly for every human mm-hmm. being in these texts. If there is an emergent theme or premise from either book with regard to you know, sexuality or specifically sexual maturity, because we are dealing frequently with young protagonists, what do you think they're trying to say? Like, what's the, the finger on the pulse of sexual culture in the 1990s that we're seeing manifest here? I grew up in the 1990s. I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot sort of in my 30s about growing up kind of in this post-feminist moment and, you know, in which we were promised that we were liberated and that we had sexual equality and yet there was a lot of frustration between like men and women boys and girls in terms of trying to have relationships and realizing that that wasn't the case because there was sort of a thing that happened where like we were told gender equality was achieved and you see a lot of sort of female characters in these texts that are sort of like that you know they're they're sexually liberated they're you know going to parties they're sleeping with who they want and yet it backfires on them because we don't actually have gender equality what seems like sexual liberation is the same old thing of the girl being effectively forced to give blowjobs in order to get attention Mm -hmm. that definitely resonates with my experience of the 90s and early 2000s Um, i graduated high school in 2002 so i grew up during this era and that seemed very true to life to me as much as it is also depressing there's also a lot of in in both books a lot of overt homophobia Mm -hmm. which rings true to the experience of living through that era do you think the books are homophobic, or do you think that the story depicts homophobia? Well, I guess this brings a question: like, are we supposed to read the male lead of Bombscare as a closeted gay man or gay teen? I mean, I think if any, if anything, he was kind of framed as asexual. Yeah, I, I can see it that way. Or maybe again, coming back to the idea of maturity, that he's just. He's not ready for this, right. and, and yeah. his culture and society is forcing it on him through yeah. again this this homophobia, um, but also through um, the only way he can form a emotional relationship. With I mean, it's sex. it's telling that these works feature homophobia, but no queer voices. Yeah, right. The culture that they're representing is the culture of then and part of the culture of then is that people weren't perhaps as aware of other people's experiences of difference as I would like to think that they are now. I'm, I'm talking about white people here, <laughs> white straights as people, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I didn't read the the guy in, in Bombs. I read him just as someone who like is feeling pressured to be sexually mature when he's not ready to be sexually mature and is not sure what masculinity means if he's yeah. not performing heterosexuality in a certain prescribed way. So, I mean, you know, that's like something presumably most of us has gone, gone through with our gender presentation in some way, shape or form. You've said that twice now in terms of um, um, you, you feel that elements, at least of these two texts, ring true. How effectively do you think they actually capture human sexuality versus the extent to which we see, you know, fictions and contrivances and we're drafting narrative? <laughs> 
<laughs> put on the spot for that. I, I don't know. I don't like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, part of why I don't like reading a comic like Summer Blonde is because it makes me so depressed about men that it makes me never mm. want to talk to them or see them or interact <laughs> with them ever, ever, ever again. I like to believe that, I like to believe hashtag not all men and that they're not all terrible. And yet a comic like this certainly makes it seem like I shouldn't bother. Especially when it's, it's four consecutive yeah. generations, right? Yeah, they seem so clearly unable to conceive of women as people that it's quite depressing the guy who tells the writer in the first story that he's an idiot seems maybe okay <laughs> yeah 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 i mean yeah he seems a little like at least because he's able but, to recognize oh, that so guy many so many a problem men. well i mean i was saying before the pod that i just the sexuality aspects of ghost world are one of the things that don't ring particularly true for me and that's a little bit unfair for me to say because we just we only really get one experience of female sexuality through enid and that could very well be someone's experience. It's not an experience that rings true for me and my female friends particularly. But mm -hmm. I mean, again, that's being unfair just because we only get that one experience. But I, it is it is a place where I feel that I feel the male writer, I guess, because there's a silence around yeah. like female sexuality. And like there's that one reference to masturbation, like. Oh, like Rebecca says to, to Enid, like, haven't you heard about the wonders of masturbation? Ew, I can't. It doesn't work. And then that's like we get the thing of her trying and then just no more discussion of like female sexuality, which, you know, maybe is a good choice because do I want Daniel Klaus really getting into that. But it is a point where I found like I because I, I did find the representation of teenage girlhood from that era to be reasonably similar to like experiences that i'm sort of familiar with but but that was a that was a stopping point for me a little bit well we had mentioned that ghost world maybe doesn't have an obvious um resolution mm -hmm. or, or or clear-cut moral or anything like that what if anything do you think we can take away from enid's experience of sexuality compared to rebecca's is this the idea that enid is like immature and is like ha 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 i'm gonna go to the adult store and all that kind of thing whereas rebecca's is a little bit more naturalistic and that's the source of her eventual happiness in the novel? Like, is, is there well, a way to draw it into the the ending of this story? I, I don't know that Rebecca has happiness. So, I mean, that's maybe... Yeah. Or if she's, like, settling. I, don't I know. think they both just come to the point where this isn't working. So, I guess we have to try something else. Yeah. I mean, what resonated for me particularly powerfully, though, about the relationship was that the closeness of female friendships, but then also the difficulty of sustaining that when there's not a structure in which that's acceptable because in high school that's and I know that there's a version of this for boyfriends too I'm just speaking from my female experience that you know like I mean it's acceptable for you to have that basically you're a couple relationship and I've had many very close female friends over my life and I'm, I tend to be like that with my friends and then well, I, well I, I know she'll never listen to this podcast, so I'll say I had one friend who basically broke up with me because she said we can't have that kind of relationship because that's a boyfriend relationship and I just don't see us that way. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what happens in Ghost World. So like, I find that very right. true to well, life. I found it kind of interesting that like we had in recent years some very focused media when it, came to when it comes to depicting very close female friendships, uh, Broad City wrapped up mm -hmm. recently uh book smart came out last year and this relationship struck me as different in the sense that like both of those are about ha feature heavy elements of expressing like positivity towards each other yeah and 
There is no, yeah, that yeah. that does that is not their relationship. But yeah, I think that you're completely right. And like, yeah, like when I watch like a show like Broad City, I'm just like, I wish I'd had this when I was a teenager. Because I mean, it's so positive about female friendships in a way that I didn't feel like there was any representation of that in the 90s. So when I say Ghost World is like very true to like my 90s girl experiences, I remember it. There was such a negativity to that kind of experience. And you know, that like... We're sort of gender deviant. Does that mean we're gay? We're not really sure. What does any of this mean? What does friendship look like? What do relationships look like? And, you know, feeling like these things should be solved because it's this post-feminist moment, but, you know, they're not solved and there was no structure in which to talk about those things. So, yeah. like, I yeah, I agree that it's, like, much more negative than something like Broad City, and yet, like, I feel there's a truth to that. Yeah, I, f- I feel like there is, but it also pushes towards the interpretation of the novel yeah. that, like, this is a toxic relationship yeah, that might have yeah, been healthy yeah, at one point yeah. but has run its course and they yeah, need to I know. Real... but also it's really interesting to see a female relationship structured this way mm-hmm. after recent like incredibly positive interpretations yeah and i mean yeah. i will say you know like i mean my two best girlfriends are friend were my best friends in high school so i mean that isn't true to ghost world in that sense right we were able to maintain those relationships Let's finish this off by resolving once and for all the meaning of Ghost World, as no comic scholar oh my has. God. The last line, which you probably all know as soon as I mention that there's this last line. Um, she sees her through a window. She says, you've grown into a very beautiful young woman in a voice that is not the voice of Enid throughout yeah, the rest yeah, of the yeah. text, but might still be her voice. What do we do with that? I always Why like, does she say that? What does is that it mean? a quote from something? Or like, I just, I don't, I don't so. have any idea. See, I've, when I've taught it, I've had the students talk about it, and they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I don't either. I just wanted to see if you had a good idea. I guess you could either take that as her imagining their eventual re-meeting. Yeah. Or, yeah. like, taking a look at her friend and being like, well, you've moved on. I guess it's time for me to. Well, she has specific... Okay, so two things we could say. Grown, which makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. The idea mm-hmm. that Enid recognizes that Rebecca has matured. Um, but specifically isolating her appearance, you've grown mm-hmm. into a very beautiful young woman. That sounds like something a grandmother would say. I was, I mm-hmm. thought it sounded a little bit like the voice of like Rebecca's grandmother, like in, you know, the scene where she's trying to tell her grandmother about her fight with Enid. And then her grandmother has some like kind of reassuring platitudes for her, but then it becomes clear she doesn't really know what they're talking about. Um, it did remind me of the tone of that, mm-hmm. which yeah, I'm assuming is intentional. It's like a condemnation of her oh you become a normie <laughs> yeah i mean that's how yeah. yeah yeah she's she's stepped into the real world right but it's hard to tell which of because i feel like you could go either way with that it's like either enid is saying this platitude and if she means it genuinely then she's become a normie yeah, exactly. or like Who's rebecca has it i know because because i think one of the ways that we might like to or at least i might like to interpret ghost world is that, that one of them normalized and the other didn't and that's why they can't be friends anymore but you could easily argue but with that line that they both have. It, it's weird because, like, Enid is trying. Like, she was the one who was getting, like, I'm going to apply for this college. And it seems like she is making more active steps, although being pushed by her father yeah. or parents into that. Yeah, and then obviously circumstances. Yeah, uh, then flip as well. It. Well, I mean, or, like, you could just be like, neither of them has really made any progress on anything. And... <laughs> 
being around each other reminds them of that yeah. therefore they can't be around yes. each other anymore i mean friendships end all the time like because you know somebody knows too much about the other person mm-hmm. and it just can't be sustainable <laughs> because of that because if someone is able to call you on your shit like that like that sometimes becomes exhausting i don't know is it an appropriately ambiguous ending i it, i think it's a do you deliberately ambiguous i do find the ending frustrating i won't lie mm-hmm. um but, i mean it's still still more of an ending than like most of Tomine's like let's just stop mid-panel or yeah which is like neat the first time and then you're like oh it's like every oh, that's time. All yeah <laughs> um so on, on that subject then um what's the thesis of summer blog you got summer... these four stories okay oh, similar all right um what are we saying life is very lonely yeah <laughs> um <laughs> Male sexuality I, is gross and broken, but we have no solution for that. Also true. Um, I think the third story is getting into issues of like cultural upbringing and race a bit more. Yeah. But also, like Tomin's trying to put it at a distance by putting it onto a female character. I think he deals with it, his own experience with that differently elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I probably like that story the best. I, I can get away. I like the ending yeah. that it's because I can also relate to the just put yourself in a God, we're getting so personal in this podcast. <laughs> it's not like us. Working through I mean, I, I think that's the I, if there's a theme to these books, it's like yeah, get yeah. super personal. Makes sense. And... Makes sense. I guess they're working. Yeah. I would point out that a, a subtitle for our podcast, Working Through Issues, would be <laughs> pretty clever. Well, well like... where was that when we were coming up with titles? <laughs> <laughs> well, so which is the story that we're that we're talking about? Oh, the Hawaiian getaway story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing I liked a bit more about that is because I felt that she was this flawed protagonist with like enough sympatheticness that like that made her a little bit more tolerable. As I mean, a protagonist. she's also like more clearly like the closest to the characters of Ghost World. I think. Mm. And her trauma was a little bit clearer. Like yeah. her reasons for feeling like an outsider and everything were far more sympathetic and clear than they were for some of the other characters. Yes. Like, you know, these misogynist characters. Well, we talked about the sort of um, overwrought nature of the, the perverse men in, in Tony's work. In that sense, having him write from a woman's perspective, in spite of all the problems that creates, it seems like she has a lot of the same desires, but they're not rendered as, again, like perversely. Uh, Hillary isn't as gross as the male characters that we see in the other chapters, I would argue, as a protagonist. Yeah, I mean, I think that that comes across. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to uh, like think about, you know, the nature of kind of her perversity a little bit. It's interesting that these are both works where a uh, female prank call features very heavily. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's something he struggled with. Or... I used to prank <laughs> call people, actually, when I was younger, which is bad. I just got prank called. So. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't have prank called you. Thank you. Well, again, trying to, to channel towards some consistency. And we don't have to even suggest that it's there. But is there a consistent depiction in terms of um, how sexuality affects men differently than it does women? Like, is this Pandora? Women are the source of all men's problems? Honestly, I think the women come off a lot more sympathetically in all these stories than the men do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does read to me like a guy who's writing from a place of shame that, you know, is interrogating masculinity, but it's just, you know... His interrogation of that kind of ends with men are awful. Look how awful they are. 
So like self-flagellation or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, I, I know that from like some men in my life that are like that that grew up during this era that you know like you feel incredibly guilty for sexism and like the misogyny of the era and the culture and everything, but you know what do you do with that? Right. And no. there wasn't really like a lot of examples or frameworks for that from this era. Is there a single positive sexual relationship in either of these books? Well, I mean, Enid's, like, first time with, like, well, who is it, like, Adam? It's not like that's, like, negative. It just seems like just, like, a gross first-time experience yeah. that's not that, it's not predatory or terrible. It's just, it is what it is. It's just a teen experience. I mean, it's, it's I will say it's, like, almost neutral, <laughs> which is maybe the best that we can get. It's almost neutral to the extent that I don't think anybody is like emotionally like ruined by it. Maybe the guy is. We don't get his perspective, so I'm not sure. I guess this is a low the least bar, damaging relationship. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, like I mean, they're about they're about youth and insecurity, so that's sort of yeah. like a given, I suppose. Well, maybe Enid's dad. He has like a lot of wives and seems happy. Um, I think the lot <laughs> there is uh, determining. He's just a lover, you know. <laughs> So, so moving in a different direction away from like, like tone and theme, I wanted to talk about, we've already discussed the idea of like the, the sort of specific chronological context, but how about like geographical? So, so Ghost World, I mean, it's the title, right? Uh, there's something about this particular um, suburban environment or semi-urban environment in contrast to Summer Blonde, which is all, I think, with maybe the exception of Bomb Scare, um, stories of like... Um, I assume LA inner city life. Um, how do those spaces function within the context of this story, and how do they maybe connect to the '90s context or to think, some of the things we've been working with? I think Ghost World really feels like the connection between time and place. That it's the post high school, and you're still around in this hometown, mm-hmm. and you feel like a ghost inhabiting your former life kind of thing. Okay, that's interesting. You may have cracked Ghost World, which is something <laughs> people have been arguing for a long time. What does Ghost World mean? Why do we keep seeing graffiti Ghost World? Well, I mean, that doesn't explain the graffiti part. But... Doesn't it, though? If you have other students out of school. Yeah, but I, I think it's a young kid that we see doing <laughs> oh, the actual right. graffiti. Yeah, we see, we see so. yeah, I don't know. It's funny that I, I did read the Tomine as being very, like, L.A. I didn't read Ghost World as being necessarily... LA but I can see why you would say that and why it probably is it kind of seemed very any place to me though you know like yeah. I didn't grow up in mm-hmm. this kind of place and yet you know I still have had these experiences needed, well just it's got to be big enough to mm-hmm. support like the feeling of isolation mm-hmm. small enough that you're running into the same people over and mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. it has at least two record shops mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like I really like the stuff that Ghost World does with the vacantness of a lot of the spaces. Mm. And the blue is kind of very effective at kind of communicating that. I mean, it communicates that in-betweenness, but also just like, I mean, the style obviously helps communicate that too. But I mean, it's, it's a style that Tomine kind of shares, that kind of like um, sparse style that communicates a kind of emptiness and, in, in, you know, it can be spatial emptiness and psychological emptiness. I don't know. I will say, as you flip through, we talked about yeah. um, Enid as kind of sexually immature, but mm-hmm. honestly, I never thought she was more cool than when she was wearing that mask. 
<laughs> it is one of her better moments. I know, that is so embarrassing. <laughs> he tells her to take it off. Um, I mean, one thing I would maybe point you to is that just in, in Ghost World, a lot of the, I don't want to call it plot advancement because it's barely plot, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the advancement happens in terms of let's go to this place. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then let's go to this place. And, and it seems like the character of those places and then the collective character of that entire environment, again, creating the title, um, I, I feel like maybe he's trying to say something. Mm. Well, they go to all these places, but then the places end up being the same as every other place because being in the different places doesn't end up changing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is just another, you know, they hang out in one diner and go to the other 50s diner. This is going to be so great. But it turns out it's full of the same depressing shit as the other diner, right? Yeah. Because, you know, they it's almost like there's a hope that they're going to be transformed by entering mm-hmm. these other spaces, but they are not. Yeah, so that, that that sort of distinction between transportation and transformation, mm. which is but that's the you ending, know, right? yeah, the bus. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she she gets on a bus and she leaves for somewhere else. I mean, do we read it as a hopeful ending or not? Like, I just like I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I go as far as hopeful. It is an ending that does not preclude that hope could exist at some point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I definitely don't find the world of Ghost World like anywhere near as hopeless as the world of Summer Blonde. In both of these cases, we have um, this, this very specific cultural background being presented in the medium of comics at a time when the medium of comics was being picked up by some of the cultures that we see represented to at least some degree. And Michael already mentioned that there's some um, references to comics collecting and such, uh, at least in Ghost World. Um, and I think there's actually some Antonian as well. So I guess my question then is really, what do you think comics as a medium contribute to either these particular stories or these particular stories as chronicles of this particular era? I mean, I feel like something to do with the multimodality of comics speaks to kind of the in-betweenness. That's kind of a theme mm-hmm. of kind of both things. I mean, the subjectiveness of reading a comic speaks to the kind of the subjectiveness of, I mean, both in terms of these being communications of like very personal specific subjectivities, but also just sort of like thematizing subjectivity, right? And I think we've talked before about how how comics is particularly good at that, you know, sort of communicating subjective realities. And that partly has to do with this multimodality, but I mean, partly just with it being this kind of visual medium as well. I mean, the different things that you can do with silence and panels, the different Mm -hmm. things that you can do with pacing, the different ways that you can speed up or slow down your reading process based on directions from the person who's making the the comic, but also just based on your own preferences. I mean, comics aren't a medium that makes you read at a certain speed. They're a medium that encourages, you know, weaving, stopping and starting, sort of non-linear ways of, of, of reading and telling stories. And I think both of these comics are utilizing that quite effectively. Well, we discussed previously uh, the connection between this and, or these books and underground comics. And mm-hmm. uh, I think if you want to, to get high literary theory about it, you could make the case that we have some Harold Bloom anxiety of influence going on, (laughs) that these are stories about people who feel like they don't have a clear connection of how their life is supposed to work Mm -hmm. based on lack of parental models, among Mm -hmm. other things. And it, there's a, I feel like there's a bit of a sense that these are creators trying to figure out how do comics work. Yeah, yeah. Like, what does it mean to make a legitimate comic when my only model were these illegitimate comics? Right. Yeah. That's kind of cool. And I mean, you know, that like 
comics being, I mean, comics are at sort of a, a placelessness in terms of their legitimacy during this era too, right? I mean, there, there are those beginnings of the legitimacy of comics as a medium, and yet it's not quite there yet. So it's like an open question in like the late 90s of like what comics are going to be. Is this like a little blip? Is like, are comics going to continue to be popular? Like what's going to actually happen? And that was not something people were sure of at the time. So, I mean, I think you can definitely read that in-betweenness, that placelessness into these comics. Right. So ruggerlessness as a quality of the form as well. Yeah, as the yeah I think yeah. so for sure. And I mean, that kind of gets back to my complaints about alternative comics, kind of <laughs> often thematizing the same thing. I mean, that insecurity and that shame that comes up again and again and again is like linked to the medium in... in sort of obvious but like it's it's very deeply woven into the themes of of a number of alternative comics mm-hmm. uh, so maybe speaking to that issue specifically daniel Klaus actually makes a cameo in his own book what do we do with that i hated it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean it's well i mean we didn't talk about it that much but i mean you know the inevitable problematics of like not teenagers at the time guys writing you know stories about teenage girls and their subjectivity and everything and i can't i've said throughout the podcast that i find it fairly authentic and i think that that you know speaks to the fact that you don't necessarily have to be the person that you're writing about you can have tremendous empathy you know across lines of identification depending on how you're approaching it um but at the same time like that cameo really took me out of that and i found it very uncomfortable because i mean it became very clear that like he was trying to directly acknowledge that issue and yet that made it actually more uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because he's bringing Enid into the story as someone that admires him and trying to comment on that like and again I feel that guilt and shame sort of in that cameo so I I guess we should kind of explain what it is there's a thing that happens in Ghost World where Enid you know likes these comics it's like one thing that she likes and Rebecca's like ew comics gross (laughs) like literally (laughs) So when she goes and meets Daniel Klaus, who just is himself in the comic, there's no alias or anything. She has this vision of him that he's going to be kind of this very sort of dapper, romantic, writerly guy smoking a cigarette with like cool glasses. And then he draws a picture of himself, you know, kind of isolated in this panel, like given this half kind of creepy smile, kind of like greasy, unbrushed hair and like a very unflattering picture of himself. And Enid just basically is like, he's the perviest, grossest guy ever and doesn't go up and talk to him. Which, you know, like that shame and everything coming across. But like, I don't know, I hated this cameo. I just thought nothing good really came of it, you know, other than him self-flagellating in the middle of the comic when actually he's doing fine and shouldn't have bothered. I guess it's yet another case of the the girls being disillusioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, just inserting himself into it and like yeah. making oh, yeah. a story about himself, anyone... I think is what I don't like about it. Because like I do find it's this like a sympathetic But it's like if this is like is a sympathetic, like and like empathetic even rather, like, you know, treatment of sort of teenage girlhood, it's like him inserting himself and asserting that distance between him and the characters. It's just like, I don't know, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Like it almost felt like that empathy was broken, like almost through this gesture, like of him you know i don't know i just didn't like it i felt like it felt out of step with with how otherwise successful this comic kind of was at at writing across identification lines how about um um, summer blonde do you find it hard not to read these male protagonists as tony himself well it's especially the one who's in therapy (laughs) (laughs) like that seems very much uh 
I mean, not everything that character does, but the therapy scene itself feels like this is what someone who went to therapy was told. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about him or anything, so like, I'm not sure. I, I wasn't sure whether I should read it as like him or whether it's sort of like a, again, like a self-flagellation thing of like about masculinity and his guilt about masculinity. There's enough sameness to the male leads yeah. to make it hard to not read that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, what about Hillary though? Can you put Hillary in that boat as well? Well, it's interesting that Hillary is the only one is the is the only character that where like race and cultural background are like a focus, let's mm. say. But I mean, I think we were saying earlier that that's part of what makes her a little bit more sympathetic, that you can kind mm-hmm. of understand where her outsiderness is coming from a little bit more yeah. than these guys for whom what it's coming from is basically just patriarchal culture and the sense of entitlement that that's ingrained in them, which, you know, is a real thing and everything, but it does make their outsiderness a bit less sympathetic because they are still part of the majority. Do you think the argument is an appeal for sympathy? Does Tony want you to see these sad kind of gross men and think, oh, I understand that they're hurting themselves kind of thing? Well, I remember I complained about that with Jimmy Corrigan substantially. I I, I didn't feel that bid for sympathy as much in Summer Blonde, I will say. And that's just, that could just be a subjective thing. Um, I'm not sure. But um, the protagonist role, though. Yeah, but I also felt like they were just so self-consciously, like, gross and disgusting and irredeemable (laughs) that I, 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 I didn't feel like I was supposed to really feel that way, but I'm not sure. Like Maybe you guys have a different response. In uh, the last story, maybe Almost more sympathetic, here. but maybe that's just yeah. me being like, maybe it's just uh, after effect of his youth that yeah. he has more yeah. potential. Well, change. I mean, I, yeah, right. I was thinking with the Jimmy Corrigan thing, I think like there being themes of parental abuse and stuff are like partly why it makes it seem like you are supposed to identify or at least feel sympathy for him a little bit more than you're supposed to for the characters in the story, which again, I, I think you're right. Like with the exception of the, the male protagonist in bomb scare, because you know, these are adult men who like, we don't really know the source of their problems. So there's, there's not a bid for sympathy there because we don't see like, Oh, they were abused. Oh, they had this happen. Oh, they were abandoned as a child. Like in the first story, uh, I don't remember what the first story is called. Um, Alter Ego. In Alter Ego, right. Like we get a reference to like, oh, your difficult backstory. But I think the fact that he doesn't get into that backstory suggests he's Mm. not sympathetic because providing those details would make him more sympathetic and those details are explicitly not provided. Mm -hmm. But Because I mean, the only details that's provided is that he's this stereotypical dude who felt like he couldn't get with the hot girl when he was like a teenager and that was, and so he deserves to feel like an outsider and like hang out with her like little sister because he was denied something. So that's like, it's really hard to read how that's a bit for sympathy, yeah, yeah. but I don't know. It's weirdly parallel again to David Bourne though. Class mm. other um, big. See, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. I've read some of, I read it sure around when I read the original, my original reading of ghost world. So it's, I, I've, I've read enough. some other clouds and I will say ghost world is the thing I like best. Okay. That's fair. I, um, I don't know exactly when I think there was, a long time when I didn't know that Klaus and uh, Chris Ware, Chris Ware, yeah. were different people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that sameness of like a certain generation of alternative comics is real. Okay, so final question to wrap things up, and let's make it a really stupid one. Um, how do either of these books that you're each representing compare to the 1990s classic TV sitcom Friends? <laughs> 
anyone or any of us a fan of Friends? I don't want to like. I mean, I've watched a lot of. I've watched enough to answer this question. I've watched some Friends. They remind me a lot of Ross, which is probably. Which is going to get hate mail over that. Oh no, Ross is absolutely the capital ng nice guy of sitcoms. Yep, despite some questionable choices. Oh no. No, those are the questionable choices. Like, the nice guy as in, like, I put on the effect of a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And why don't you treat me better because of it? Yeah, I've never, I didn't... See, I don't know anything about Friends, but I don't like the narrative <laughs> that, like, the Jennifer Aniston character should be with him because he is so nice and this is a thing. Especially when he treats her so terribly whenever they're not dating. Yeah. Well, I don't... Yeah. I, don't, um, <laughs> I guess in the lack of consciousness of people of color and... <laughs> Sexual diversity. Also true. Yeah, in depictions of the innocent. <laughs> Although yeah, we do have the one story in Summer Blonde, but <laughs> don't know. That's a that's a that's a what you call it. That's almost an Enid esque answer. I apologize. Today I'm reviewing Charles Hatfield's Alternative Comics on Emerging Literature, published in 2005 by University of Mississippi Press. This is the first academic we've covered twice, something I labored with for a variety of reasons, including the perception of bias. Charles Hatfield was the external reader reader for my doctoral defense. But in struggling to find another academic text that speaks to the alternative comics movement, I found myself constantly comparing back to Hatfield, and that comparison never seemed flattering next to the seminal import of Hatfield's alternative comics, within the history of this era of comics, and comics scholarship for that matter. Hatfield's work is perhaps most notable for creating a discrete separation between the underground comics movement and the alternative comics movement, which did inherit a great deal from the underground era of the 60s and 70s, but which also distinguishes itself from the former in a wide number of highly important ways that Hatfield elegantly brings to the foreground. Where the underground comics movement achieved critical validation in hindsight, it was the alternative comics movement that demanded attention as validation was happening through, among other things, a commitment to artistic integrity through verisimilitude far beyond what the underground pursued. The result was, in some part, the comics as literature movement. What Hatfield chronicles in his book, then, is kind of the reason I have the life I have, teaching and studying comics from an academic perspective, paid for and endorsed through the academy itself. I owe a lot to the history that this book chronicles, and no small amount to the actual book itself. I'll have to wear my bias on my sleeve. Hatfield's introduction articulates the rise of this moment and positions it as a response to a cultural upheaval society was undergoing beginning in the late 1960s. His first chapter then demonstrates the complex relationship between the underground and alternative comics movements, while his second chapter then explores how the medium works to take up the broader themes of the alternative movement, including the codependent evolution of the form with said themes in order to better represent them. Chapter 4 isolates Gilbert Hernandez's heartbreak soup stories as an example, providing readers at the same time with the best and most expansive reading of that pivotal comic to exist at the time. Though we might argue that his choice elevates Hernandez above the other equally valid alternative comics influencers. For my part, I'm not complaining. Hernandez is as good as any of the other options, and Hatfield's theories want a specific example here. Hatfield's final chapter isolates a specific genre as an emergent property of the alternative comics movement, autobiographical comics with lots of discussion of comics icons such as Mouse, Pinky Brown, and our own Daniel Klaus. Hatfield's conclusion loops in the publishing industry and the rise of the graphic novel with its power to further validate the demonized medium of comics. As mentioned, my bias is large. I like this book. 
One of my biggest problems, though, in revisiting this book more than a decade after I first discovered it is just the extent to which Hatfield's argument gets mired in ethos building in having to explain to the reader why comics should be taken seriously at all. Oddly, I find this reaction kind of delightful, since when I first read alternative comics, it seemed to me as well that Hatfield's efforts to validate the comics medium were much needed, and the simple fact that they really aren't anymore, outside of the most cluelessly elitist circles, is testament to the book's impact and to just how far the field of comics scholarship has come in a short span of years. At the same time, however, I find myself wondering how much more insightful and precise this book could have been if Hatfield were simply in a better position to take the value of the medium as a given. For our purposes, alternative comics can help us consider the extent to which our two authors today are embroiled in a specific context of history, politics, culture, and the pursuit of respectability. Reading these texts as we are, more than a decade removed from their original publications, we can't help but decontextualize them. Hatfield can bring us back from that, though and more broadly, remind us where these books and thousands of others like them came from. So that is it for this month's episode. Uh, as is our usual habit, we thought we would do some recommendations and I posed to the group that we suggest things from the 90s in, in honor of today's theme. Uh, Michael, what do you have? I have something that is Tangentially, well, it's on the very cusps of being a 90s thing. Uh, the 1999 TV series Freaks and Geeks, set in the 1980s, but uh, I think tonally similar to these works in the sense that it's all about alienated young people trying to figure out who they are. And I think it, what I like about it is that it's kind of doing exploring similar themes of alienation, but less gloomy about it mm -hmm. uh it also has i mean i guess it g gives you a chance to get into the retro 80s theme before stranger things made it cool uh in fact freaks and geeks is kind of like what if you took stranger things and took out all the supernatural stuff uh it also stars pretty much the people who would go on to define a generation of film comedy from james franco jason siegel seth rogan they're all here and very young yeah, I haven't seen it in at least 10 years. I don't know if it holds up well, but let's make it the recommendation. There is a montage in that show of Martin Starr just eating and watching television. That is the darkest, most existential thing I think I've ever seen on television. I like have never watched it because I don't think I, I don't know, I, I, I hate the early 90s. And I just like the 90s was bad or not the sorry, I hate the early 2000s. It was like this time where we weren't sure what we were doing and like just was a bad time. And like, I didn't like that time in history and I don't want to revisit it, even though I know this one's not set then, but it is, oh, I just can't, it's too Fair. close to home. So on that note, what did you? <laughs> well, I selected something that is sort of from my childhood. It's a really dumb recommendation. I sometimes get into like a total like, you know, like YouTube vortex watching the college humor series, Zach Morris's Trash, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, them recounting plots of the 90s show Saved by the Bell and how mm. horrible Zach Morris is. Only I feel like it kind of has the opposite effect on me where I'm like, man, he's the best because I really <laughs> thought he was the best growing up. And, you know, him manipulating his friends into doing things still seems awesome to me. So... Zach Morris for president. Nice. Uh, I'm going to um, put in a, I don't know, um, odd-ish plug for Batman the Animated Series. 
which, like some of the things we were talking about today, was very much um, a surfacing uh, of a particular comics-adjacent cultural element that I think um, sometimes get undercredited. I think we like mm-hmm. to look at a lot of artistic movements as um, being academically driven to some degree, as opposed to pop culture driven. Uh, and Batman the Animated Series, I think, legitimated the superhero uh, in mm-hmm. ways that it really doesn't get enough credit for, even though it does get a lot of credit for that. How would and, been... it's, and its focus, at least in the first half, at least, it's all about the villains. Yeah. So it, it does kind of resonate with these texts as the alienated <laughs> person uh, tries to reconnect to the world and fails. Yeah. Are we excited about the Harley Quinn movie? No. I kind of like the Harley Quinn cartoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that note. Um, we would like to thank St. Jerome's University for the use of their equipment and facilities. And next month, we'll be back with a look at Transformers versus G.I. Joe by John Barber and Tom Shilley. And the 2017 Flintstones reboot by Mark Russell and Steve Pugh. We hope you'll join us then.